Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to bring you the latest news in the polls driving politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So before we get into our top lines, I have a few pretty awesome announcements. So the first is thank you to everybody who's and doing all sorts of shout outs and following us on Twitter, are retweeting all of our stuff. It's really made a huge difference. We've been featured in a variety of places. We've actually uh, doubled our audience in just a few weeks, which is, I think, pretty incredible. And so that's really as a result of, of everybody's help. So thanks so much. And in particular, thanks to our micro assignment from last week, we asked people to uh, post on the comments section of Go Fug Yourself. They had a chat of what's your favorite podcast. And we had a couple really nice posts. So we, we didn't think anybody would do it. We were worried nobody would do it. But in fact, we heard Katie Rhodes. I'm absolutely obsessed. Uh, Kristen and Margie provide insight into the world of politics and pop culture while making you feel like a friend. Aww. We're, we are your friends, Katie. We are your friends, Katie. <laughs> we are all friends. And then Kelly Westbrook. Do you know Kelly? Did you know her before? I, I do not know Kelly. She is not an anonymous. I know this is suspicious, by the way, that both of these names start with K <laughs> and that I was joking on last week's show, like, oh, I'm going to make up fake names. But I promise you, these, the, these I am not, not your, Katie and I am not Kelly. These are not your alter egos. Well, Kelly says that um, she hates politics in all caps, but she likes our show and she would love, and also in all caps, to take us out to lunch. So you can, you're more than welcome to take us out to lunch, Kelly. I guess we know who you are. <laughs> well, we'll take you up on that. And then Kylie is another K who works at Pew, actually wrote on Facebook that she hoped that one day she could be a guest on our show. So that was pretty exciting. So thanks, all you ladies, for giving us such nice shout outs about the show. We really do appreciate and other folks too. So a micro assignment for next week is um, we're working on like a polling 101 explainer episode. It would be evergreen. Like I answer all of your questions like what's a push poll, which was in my Twitter feed last night. What's margin of error? Right. And, you know, how come I don't get polled very often, which is we talked about, I think, last week. Or um, how do you know a thousand interviews is enough? Those kinds of questions. You have basic questions about polling. You should tweet us at the pollsters or go to our Facebook page, which is also the pollsters, and let us know what your questions are. Not like how do you use the Bonferroni adjustment? Not those kinds of questions. These are ba- polling 101 questions for folks who follow the show. Maybe they hate politics like uh, Katie and Kelly, but um, want to know a little bit more. So um, that's your micro assignment for this week. Anyway, what are the top lines? 
Uh, top lines this week. Suddenly, it's the Democratic primary that has everyone buzzing. Um, Iowa and New Hampshire both seem to be feeling the burn. What does this mean for the Democratic contest? Uh, and then how would an independent candidate fare? We'll look at some polling on the number of Americans that are no longer identifying with either party. Uh, Margie does an interview with Scott Keeter of the Pew Research Center talking about their latest paper on new ways to think about how we decide who is a likely voter. Uh, Guns were in the news last week. We'll take a look at the polling on the issue and how it has evolved post San Bernardino. Uh, Tonight, I plan to go home, relax, have a glass of wine and watch the State of the Union. Do the polls suggest that this is how many Americans react on your average uh, typical weekday evening? And then last but not least, because we have to cover pop culture, the Golden Globes. What can we learn about the Golden Globes from polling? So first, before we get into all that, our poll of the week, uh, our big number of the week is the percentage of people who say they're part of the gig economy. So using things like Lyft or Uber or Care.com, it turns out about 22% of people say they're part of the gig economy. They offer up services through that. This is a poll that was in Time Magazine by Penchon in Berlin and Burson Marsteller and the Aspen Institute. Uh, 42% are users. 22% are offerers. Offerers are predominantly male uh, minority and younger and live in cities, which is, you know, I guess not too much of a surprise, some of those, particularly the urban piece. Um, But this includes not just Uber, which is the obvious example, but things like Care.com, which I know I've used uh, to find caregivers, Airbnb, Instacart, Postmates. I've never heard of caviar. That sound, I like the sound Ooh. of that one. So uh, I have to put in a little plug. My husband's company, Galley, yes. counts as one of those. Galley, if you're in D.C. or Baltimore and you want food delivery. Oh, yes. So these are all pretty, you know, I use like a virtual assistant for my kind of home personal mm-hmm. stuff. So fancy hands. I don't know if that's on here, but that would be an example of one where people can do online or telephone tasks for, a, you know, a few dollars and they can do that in their home. So a fifth sounds like a pretty high number. I, think. I, I was surprised that 10 percent of Americans say that they provide rides through Uber, Lyft and Sidecar. I wonder if this may be one of those polls where people are like, yeah, sure, I, I provide ride sharing, you know, and, and maybe maybe they're misunderstanding the question. I don't think it's the case that one out of every 10 Americans is an Uber driver. Right. But that that's sort of what this poll is implying. Uh, what was really fascinating, though, was when they asked people, do you like working in the industry? Do you like working with one of these new economy companies? Seventy one percent of people say they're having a positive experience working in the industry. Only two percent have a negative experience. Um, and you know, this is sort of one of those questions that comes up whenever people are saying, well, shouldn't the government maybe regulate Uber more? Is it really good for workers and stuff? Um if 71% of people working in the industry are having a positive experience, that's uh, that's pretty good. Yeah. But, you know, the people who work in the industry are more likely to say the government should get involved in some sort yep. of regulation than those who are not working in the industry. So th- there is some sense of folks who, even though they have a good experience with it, maybe want to see a little bit more involvement because maybe they feel that um, there are some worries about exploitation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, check it out. It's in Time Magazine. Pretty interesting. But what is really making everybody go bonkers this week in Washington is the Democratic side. We never – we very, very rarely have a week where we just talk about the Democratic side and not the Republican side. And this is definitely one of those weeks. Trust us. We'll be back, Republican side. This is one of those – last week I said that the Iowa Democratic race was snoozeville. Well, because last week it I was, made that comment about the kids and the couch, which upon reflection, I, I need to retract my statement a little bit. I said – 
that the Republican polling average chart looked like a bunch of fifth graders with markers and you tell them not to write all over a white couch. Upon Like thinking about it, I'm like, I was actually a really in control of myself by the time I hit fifth grade. No, you were grade. talking like, about like Lucy and her peeps who are just drawing over everything. Yeah, like Walls, it should have been couch. like five years old, yeah. not fifth grade. By the time I was a fifth grader, like I was plotting with like the kids in my neighborhood. Like we were getting into trouble that didn't involve property destruction, like just the wanton coloring on furniture. Yeah, no, that's what goes on. And they blame it on Be- – I'm like, who did this? Oh, Beckett did it. I'm like, Beckett can't hold a spoon. <laughs> Beckett can't sit up, okay? He did not do that. And then, <laughs> oh, I see Lucy's already learning some of the important tricks of the trade of being an older like, what sibling. What are you talking about? Good job, and, Lucy. And there's like this robot that we made once, she and I, uh, directed by somebody where you put markers in cardboard and you attach a, um, a popsicle stick and a battery and then you let it go and it just makes like all the colored markers all just sort of go in a random pattern. And that is definitely what the Republican primary <laughs> contest looks like. But the Democratic contest in Iowa, last week it was Snoozeville. This week it looks like snowplow when you learn to ski. That's yep. what it looks like. That, that's kind of what it looks like. You've got like a pizza. Week. Don't French fry. <laughs> pizza. Don't French fry. Right. You're going to have a bad time. <laughs> that's right. And that's what it looks like um, just in really the course of a week. And uh, there have been a lot of polls, I guess, starting Sunday was when the first poll came out. The NBC Wall Street Journal Marist poll uh, showed that the race was like a three or four point race in Iowa on the Democratic side. Um, there have been a few other polls since then. Some of them show Sanders up a couple points. Some of them show Clinton up a couple points. All of this is in Iowa. Remember, a week ago, it was like a 10 to 13 point advantage. Clinton in Iowa, it all just went upside down. Uh, In Iowa, you have more polls showing a wider spread in New Hampshire, where Sanders has been up now for a while, but polls now showing him up a little bit more in New Hampshire. Different polls using different kinds of screens and different outlets and different sets of house effects. Um, but the trend is all the same. And it, 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 the fact that you have a bunch of them released all at the same time showing the same pattern, I think is very striking. You see the Clinton campaign responding in terms of how they're talking about Sanders. Uh, she said something, I think it was today or yesterday. Well, that's a revolution I'd be concerned about. You had Joe Biden by some accounts. Oh, Joe. Joe's interview. He threw Threw a little shade, I guess, at Clinton. It sounds. I think like. that's the that's the correct usage of throwing shade. Throwing shade is my favorite, one of my favorite podcasts, by the way. It is really, <laughs> it is so good. I I know they don't listen to my show, but it, our show, but I definitely listen to their show. It's like it's just the funniest thing. People should check it out if they want like sort of raunchy political commentary. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then sold, sold. As opposed to our clean Disney fied political commentary, <laughs> they should check out throwing shade. Um, anyway, but seemed sounded like Joe Biden threw a little shade. And then what does this mean for, you know, sort of separate from what's going on in the in the caucus and in the primary? It's clear that something is happening and people are going to respond. Um, what does it mean for this other issue in terms of the general, which is this notion of electability? And the we've talked about this in a lot of polls where the polls would be tied in the primary or maybe Sanders would have an advantage on a variety of traits but if it came to electability, it was clear that Clinton had that locked up. You know, the notion of electability was something where she was strong and he wasn't. That was true at every poll. And so the Sanders campaign has been trying to acknowledge this with or address this with a memo that they released. Remember, we had their pollster on Ben Tolchin a few weeks ago. 
they, uh, Ben put out another uh, memo and uh, basically saying independent, you know, we're still doing better with independents. We still are as good, if not stronger than Clinton in general election matchups. So this notion of electability, you know, where sort of people are overestimating it or mischaracterizing it because we're as strong or stronger on electability than the Clinton campaign is. And then you saw folks like Philip Bump at The Fix and Washington Post say, well, who cares about electability because how can you measure electability so far out? Anyway, it's not a thing that you can measure when people don't even know who all the candidates are yet. So that's basically what's been going on the Democratic side. I should say all of this in the context of disclosure. Hello, new listeners that – my husband is on Team Sanders, the media team for uh, the Sanders campaign, but I'm undecided and I talk about this pretty neutrally, as you could probably gather. Yep. We are we are neutral here on, on the pollsters uh, in our assessment of the data. Yeah. I mean, the Democratic primary has been fascinating because there are, you know, fewer trend lines than the Republican side because there are fewer candidates. But Bernie Sanders' trend line has just been moving in one direction since – the beginning since February, since a year ago, the numbers have just been moving steadily, slowly, but steadily up and up and up. And now you're in a place where uh, he's doing well in these two early states. And remember, in t- 2008, Hillary Clinton lost Iowa, but then came back in New Hampshire. Right. If she loses Iowa, she's not coming back in New Hampshire this time around because New Hampshire is Bernie Sanders territory. It's the state next door. So then the question is, well, what do the polls look like then in South Carolina? Or Nevada. Or Nevada, right? Are these places less Bernie Sanders friendly, Um, more, you know, especially in South Carolina? Is it more of a Hillary Clinton type of a place? In part because, you know, while Bernie Sanders does very well among younger voters, which is a big piece of the Democratic coalition, um, women, that's a Hillary Clinton block. Um, African-American voters are not – it's not like when it was Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama. Right. You know, Bernie Sanders' coalition looks a little bit different. And so that actually f- means that Hillary Clinton has a better shot in a place like South Carolina. But if she loses those first two, I mean, that's – that would be big news. Right. That would be and, almost bigger news than like Trump winning those first two on the Republican side. Right, because we've all been sort of – Get, we've all started making our peace, making our peace with that. Right, that's we've, gonna happen. Uh, right, that's what, you know. Oh we're all God. we're all getting we're all ready for that train to <laughs> crash. But um, but Sanders has been up in Nevada on television for a while, and Clinton just went up in in on television. I think a couple of weeks ago. So, there, you know, the race is already starting to move to those next states. And the other piece of this is the money too, where folks should note that you know, I mean, Clinton has raised. Obviously, a lot of money, but Sanders also hasn't raised enough money to to stay in this initial contest for sure. So, um, so anyway, so it has been an exciting couple of days to watch the news and news about the polling and Twitter and Twitter about the polling and the coverage of the polling mm-hmm. and talking about it on the pollsters. There's been a lot of buzz about the Democratic. Well, side. and there's just there's a little more enthusiasm around Bernie Sanders as well compared to Hillary Clinton. So this poll, uh, I believe this was conducted by um, Monmouth in New Hampshire, and it asked, how would you feel if Hillary Clinton became the Democratic nominee? Enthusiastic, satisfied, dissatisfied, or upset? So there's about a quarter of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire who says, I would be dissatisfied or upset if she was the nominee. Now, you still have 36 percent who say enthusiastic and 38 percent satisfied. So you still have the vast majority of Democrats saying like they would be fine with Hillary Clinton as the nominee, which is, of course, a very different story than what you see on the Republican side where people say, like, I want my person. And if it's right. somebody of a different stripe from the party, 
that's a mess. That's horrible. Right. Here, it's people are not like I'm picking Bernie Sanders because I loathe Hillary Clinton. That's not the case. They're just not as excited. Bernie Sanders, when it comes to enthusiastic, 48 percent of Democratic voters say they'd be enthusiastic about him as their nominee. Forty two percent say they'd be satisfied. Only six percent dissatisfied and only two percent upset. So the enthusiasm, excitement and positive vibes are much more happening in the Sanders tent than right. in the Clinton tent, at least in New Hampshire. At which, least in New Hampshire. Like in Iowa, Quinnipiac polls show that Clinton voters are more likely to say they've made up their minds, 84 uh, percent, as opposed to Sanders voters, 73 percent. That's not a drastic difference, but it is still a bit of a difference there, suggesting that her support is a little bit more baked in than his. Um, the other thing that's very much worth noting for all these polls is what turnout is going to be. New caucus goers. New primary voters are going to be disproportionately Sanders voters. That's true in a lot of these polls. We just don't know what the makeup uh, uh, will be. And we're going to talk to Scott Keeter about likely voter models. It's a little bit different when you're talking about a caucus and when you're talking about a general election. Um, Caucus is even different than primaries because there's some sort of barrier to entry, psychological barrier to entry. You think it's some kind of – strange process that is not just like going to a voting booth. You have to do mm-hmm. something else. Um, but despite all that, you know, there is precedence of uh, having a, a candidate get people enthousi- enthused and having them show up when they haven't shown up before. That certainly happened on the Democratic side before. It could happen again. But we just don't know where this all lands. Just like Trump's support for sure depends on can he get people who are not traditional voters to the polls. There's a little bit of that, too, on the Democratic side for Sanders and Clinton. One final note on the Republican side, and it's not a a poll result specifically, but it's a story about a poll being conducted. Uh, Just saw this on Twitter this morning. Apparently, the buzz out there is that the Cruz folks, either the campaign itself or a super PAC, was fielding a poll um, and a political science professor was one of the respondents. Um, So, of course, if you are someone like us, works in this industry, you get called for a poll immediately your you know your spidey sense gets all tingly and you you know you start taking down notes like who is calling me and what are they calling about and so this professor he took down detailed notes of the call and apparently it was sort of a, a it's the sort of poll where if you don't know the industry you go oh, that's a push poll but it's really just a message test poll right. but it was testing messages about um, well, one, trying to figure out how much has this whole Ted Cruz birtherism thing hurt Ted Cruz um, and then testing messages about, you know, Donald Trump has never asked for forgiveness of God. He's not a good Christian. He's a New York liberal. You know, all of these potential messages that you can now see that the Cruz campaign is like figuring out, OK, if we decide to deploy weaponry against uh, Donald Trump, which they have not done up until this point, which which bomb are we going to drop? The right. he's not a good Christian bomb. The he's a New York liberal who donates to Democrats bomb. The like he supports single payer health care bomb. Like which which weapon do you go with? And so well, we don't know what the result of the poll is because it's a private poll. But whenever you're calling people, there's always the risk that you will call that political science professor who writes down notes about everything they're being asked. That's right. Boom. The playbook is now public. And especially in a place where everyone is so, you know, engaged. Like You Iowa. have to have called every Republican caucus goer in Iowa. Yeah. I mean, they're they all, all must have been they're called. They're all re- Yeah, they're all ready to be called. They're all ready to be called for something, right? I mean, that's their job. They're like, okay, here we go. It's our job. Um, and it, people were talking about this on Twitter last night because I saw that too. And you know, there were folks saying, well, that sounds very push poly to me. And I said, well, that's not a push poll. If it was long, 
then it was probably not a push pull. It was probably no, a message. No, a testing. push pull would have been like, hi, are you so and so? Do you think that Donald Trump eats live puppies for breakfast? Like, that's <laughs> okay, that's a push pull. Right. And then you release it and you're like, oh, or, and, that's and or you then release it as like, here are your results. You do the that poll. and then you do a ballot test. It so, turns out after we read some information about Donald Trump, you know, everybody hates him. <laughs> oh, we won't tell you what that was. Honestly, but- I bet you you could tell voters that Donald Trump eats a live kitten for and breakfast every morning up. and his support would go up. <laughs> that was morbid. I apologize. Oh. <laughs> well, it didn't help. Yeah, I know. It's the puppy, the pup, there was actually a puppy ad with uh, Michael Steele in Maryland. I remember that. Those, I mean, that was a fun exchange. Everybody had a good time with that. He's like, I, I love puppies, I think was one of the ads. Anyway. <laughs> And somebody on Facebook was trying to – one of my friends on Facebook were like, hey, everybody, which was the ad and where somebody was <laughs> walking around in Wisconsin trying to catch <laughs> cow farts in a in a jar? And everyone was like, oh, yes, that ad was for – like it was from like the early oh mid-90s. Politics is so <laughs> weird. My favorite thing to do is find – like whenever I get a new intern or someone who's a new staffer who's like in their early to mid-20s, I always say, have you ever seen the demon sheep ad? Um, for our listeners who don't know, Google Demon Sheep. Uh, I, what's the Fred candidate's Davis. name? Well, oh. Fred Davis made the ad. Uh, it was, oh gosh, he said he was an FCINO, fiscal conservative in name only. Tom something. It was a Fiorina campaign ad when she was in the primary, the Senate in California, uh, Senate race name? in California. Um, anyhow, like she was running space. against someone who was, I think, a state comptroller, maybe. Um, or some kind of had some kind of role in the finances of the state, uh, and the ad is just pretty much like you think you've hallucinated it. It's special, so I always like when I get a new intern or something. I'm like, we're gonna watch. Like, I want to watch you watching this ad because this is a real ad that happened in it, politics. It, it used to be when <laughs> I first moved to town back in the ye olden days. They the hotline would send around a VHS tape with all the best ads of the year. <laughs> And we would all huddle around the television and the VCR player. Look it up, kids, if you're not sure what all that stuff is to watch the, you know, the craziest ads of the year when everyone had a good, good old, good old laugh. Oh, um, my god! Anyway, so now it's a little bit easier to do that. You can do that while away the hours every day looking up old television ads back to, as opposed to them when you had to be sent at the end of this cycle at a VHS tape. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Americans are frustrated with their leaders and frustrated with politics as usual and hate political ads as usual – is that part of why so many of them are becoming independents? Margie, Maybe. what's the story here? Well, Gallup did this. You know, the Politico headlines were like record low ID for Democrats and everyone went, ha-ha. But it's basically the story is not so much the Dem ID, which is at record low. Republican ID is pretty much right at record low. It's not really – you know, we're talking about a difference of one point. So Democrats are at 29 percent ID. That's percent that say I identify as Democrats. 26 percent identify as Republicans. 42 percent identify as independents. That is the fifth year in a row where independents have been over 40% of the population. That's a new trend. That hasn't happened yet. So this is just something that's happened in the last five years. It's now a thing, right? This is now officially a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it shows a continued weakening of trust in our institutions, feeling kind of, you know, uh, turned off by the, you know, party political process, politics as usual. Um, uh, it's something that 
you know, you see the same pattern with Democrats a little bit out, outpacing Republicans when you include leaners. Um, but that doesn't really change this overall pattern, which is sort of both parties are struggling, even though there have been peaks and valleys for both over the past years. Right now, really, both parties are in trouble. One of the big questions that uh, is always posed in political science is, is there really such a thing as an independent? That a lot of people who say they are independents are functionally one party or the other. And so, of course, you know, when you ask the question, uh, you know, do you lean one way or another when they group the, the Republicans in with the independent leaning Republicans and they group the Democrats in with the independent leaning Democrats, you know, this, the gap is still D plus three. Democrats right. have three percent more um, people sort of leaning their way than than do Republicans. Um, but that's a lot of people that, that you know, you can eventually push them to admit that they have some kind of of a lean. I mean, then you you're cutting the pure independent down to like 10 or something per you know, I mean, just slightly over 10 percent. Uh, so this is one of the big questions. You know, we saw in the 2012 race, and I confess I was one of those people that would look at polls and we'd say, oh, my gosh, Mitt Romney's winning like independence by 10 points. How can he lose the presidency if he wins independence by 10 points? And part of it was you had a lot of Republicans who just hated calling themselves Republicans, but they were still functionally Republican. And so they called themselves independent, but you had this this chunk of Republicans calling themselves independent, swaying the way the independent crosstab looked. And so, yeah, Mitt Romney could win independence and win them by a reasonable margin and still lose the presidency because of this aversion to having the label, but still people still exhibiting the behavior that you would associate with the label. Right. And so there'll be all kinds of different independents. So there are leading independents and D-leading independents and then there are independents who say, like, I just, you know, I'm opting out of this because I'm angry with the two parties for X, Y, and Z reason. Or I'm libertarian or I'm whatever. And there are also going to be independents in there who are not really following. You know, there's just independents who say, I'm so out of touch with what's going on in politics. I'm calling myself an independent. But some of them are really not following politics very closely, period. So that's why sometimes independents can seem like they move around a lot of it a lot of times. That's because some of them are low information, not all of them. So that's, you know, to really understand independence, you have to slice and dice them a little bit further. Pew, I think, has a really good taxonomy of independence. This really, this new Gallup study is really just to show the broader trend of how people what word people use to identify themselves with regardless of what else may come go together with that word the word that they use is important in and of itself to study so if if independents are increasing then does this mean president bloomberg is on the horizon right so the independent piece obviously was been pushed around by the sanders campaign because that's a sign if they're doing well with independents and independent ids on the rise that adds supports their electability claim you also saw reports that michael bloomberg uh Independent um, mayor, uh, former mayor of New York, uh, has uh, been polling to test the waters for his own race. So I I think, you know, then you also have people talking about Trump. Would Trump run as an independent if he, you know, if he didn't get the nomination? Would Republicans put somebody on the ballot as an independent if Trump gets the nomination? I mean, there are now a lot of different ways we can have an independent candidate on the ballot. And we never had that. I mean, a lot of times people kind of think about it or threaten it or write about it because that's fun to do. But now you're talking about four different possibilities of some type of independent candidate or candidate vying for the independent voter, right? That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, this could be – it'd be like having a Ross Perot in that you have a wealthy billionaire who's considered an independent 
jumping in, but what if you have two of them then? What if you have like a like a Bloomberg on the one hand and then Trump is sort of the opposite side of that coin, like also an extraordinarily wealthy individual with high name ID from New York City, but like a completely different set of issues and approaches to everything. <laughs> I mean, you could have three New Yorkers running for president. You could have Hillary Clinton, Michael Bloomberg, and Donald Trump. I'm sure that middle America <laughs> would love nothing more than to have that choice presented they to them. They definitely all know what a Bialy is. <laughs> <laughs> they, would, they would have the Bialy, the Bialy primary. That Instead is, of the beer, who would you rather have a beer with? Be, who would you rather have a Bialy That is true. With? Well, and if Christie is the Republican nominee, for like if that somehow happens, then, I mean, like you've got the tri-state area. That's right. Kind of covered. That's right. Good news. Good news for uh, my peeps back in New Jersey. So, um, so anyway, so that's what's going on on the mostly Democratic side, but obviously there's action all around. Um, next up uh, tonight, we're recording on Tuesday. It's a day earlier than we usually do, and tonight is the State of the Union, and you'll see some focus to uh, the president's executive actions on guns. Uh, he spoke about them last week. He also um, did a town hall. There have been a Obviously, a series of gun tragedies over the last few months. We haven't talked about the gun polling on the show in a while, um, but I just uh, put something up on Huffington Post pollster, so folks should check it out about gun polling. And, and there are a few big points to take away from that. And folks should take a look at it. And uh, there's a variety of links to it, links to all the different studies I cite. So the first is we can all stipulate that people support stronger background checks. I mean, whether it's 70 percent, 90 percent, it's very pervasive support. It's bipartisan. It's gun owners. It's everybody. You know, when you have numbers like that, that's really high. We should, you know, that that's a fact that hasn't really moved. That's been true for a long time. Um, even when you add, there have been two polls now that ask, what about President Obama's executive actions on guns, even that has majority support. So normally when you say the pre President Obama wants to do X, support falls. That's not actually not true. It just falls somewhat. It's still majority support. Even half of Republicans support uh, his executive actions on guns. Uh, so that that I think is is worth looking at. Um, also, there's we should acknowledge, too, that the flip side of all this support is that there are some worries about safety and security, that people do worry about whether or not gun laws can can be effective in reducing gun violence. You have a staggering number of feeling this is just a new normal for us, that we're going to have mass shootings and mass gun violence. That's just what is happening. You have a lot of folks worrying that there there's, uh, there's very little that we can do effectively to reduce gun violence. And that's, I think, a real concern that, that we should acknowledge, folks who are advocates for stronger gun laws should acknowledge. But I think then the, the, the other thing to really pay attention to is this this strong opposition to gun laws, this very um, – the the sense that there's this real intensity gap, that the opponents outweigh the supporters uh, dramatically is not really borne out in the data. And when you actually look at it, it's really due to partisan differences and sort of partisan intensity and the and this kind of toxic partisanship that we have where the the broader questions, the questions that ask about the political dialogue, that's where you see perhaps the stronger intensity in the opposition side. It's not as consistent as you would think. When, again, you're asking about specific policies, then it's not so consistent. It's not so divided. So, uh, you know, I, I think taken all together, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of good news for folks who are supporting stronger gun laws and uh, uh, 
way to look at this that, you know, breaks it down into all the different components, you know, how people feel about the policy itself, how people feel about the debate, how people feel about their own personal security, actual gun ownership rates, which are also down. You know, I really need to take a look at all that together to really think about what's the big picture here. One of the charts that I did see sort of circulating around uh, right before the president's remarks was a chart of how many guns are purchased each month and that at the same time that you have the gun ownership rate is lower, that fewer individuals are gun owners or live in gun-owning households, that people who do own guns now are more likely to have a lot of guns. So like you saw something like 2.4 million guns sold during December. Uh, And that's not necessarily because people think, oh my gosh, the government's coming for my guns. I need to buy as many as I can now and stockpile them in my basement. I wonder if it's if I would love to go back over time and look at and see if there's a correlation between firearm purchases and like feelings of just general insecurity, feelings that crime is on the rise, feeling that ISIS, you know, or terrorism is is a threat. I wonder if there's a correlation between that. If if that like what what is the driver when you see gun ownership itself going up and down? Is it people's fears about the government or is it fears about you know, crime? Is it fears about terrorism? Like what does draw, what what convinces someone to go out and buy a gun? I'd be interested in seeing data on that. So here's what I know off the top of my head, right? So one is that it used to be that gun ownership was really more about hunting and that's less true now. Now it's more about self-defense in terms of what people say, mm-hmm. why they have a gun. So that has flipped just in the last 20 some odd years. Um, you know, some would say, I don't have polling to back this up. I may It may exist um, that it, the change has come from the NRA and the gun industry as folks are moving away from hunting, how do you get people to buy more guns? And you do that by getting them sort of worked up and, you know, worried that someone's going to come for their guns and so then they buy more guns or getting at least the people who have guns to buy more of them as a way to kind of continue the industry. That's what some folks say about that number. Um, but that's not like a polling question. That's some other type of question. Um, you know, I you know I think overall the trend in gun ownership has gone down. So even though there are concerns that flare up about safety and security and worries about crime, almost rarely move with crime rates. So crime can, has gone down. Worries about crime kind of always. Violent always, crime is down like enormously from the early nineties. Yeah, but worries about crime are the same. So gun ownership has gone down. Worries about crime are basically the same. Actual crime's gone down. So I don't know if there is a relationship between perceptions of crime and gun ownership because then you would see gun ownership go up or move around. Maybe it makes a difference for people buying that second, third or fourth gun. That I, that I don't know. Well, now I'm excited to hear your interview with Scott Keeter from the Pew Research Center. Well, we're so happy to have uh, Scott Keeter from Pew Research Center join us to talk about not just his views uh, on the industry, but also this really exciting report uh, that just came out about how we can improve our likely voter models. So it's it's pretty exciting stuff. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the pollsters this week. Oh, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this new report. I mean, one of the big challenges, as folks who listen to the show well know, is uh, how do we predict who's going to turn out? That the polls are are frequently characterized as being off uh, midterms in particular, odd year elections in particular. Um, but it seems like it, you have a new report that suggests maybe there's a new way to tackle this problem. Well, you know, when you think about it, uh, a pre-election poll can be wrong for one or more of three different reasons. You got a bad sample. You got too many Democrats or too many Republicans in the sample. 
people change their mind between the time you do the poll and when the election occurs, or you don't make an accurate forecast of who's actually going to show up to vote. More people say they're going to vote than actually vote. And some people who say they're not going to vote actually do vote because campaigns are successful in mobilizing them between the time that you talk to them and and, uh, when the election is actually held. So in this paper, we really focused on the turnout question. Pollsters uh, for ages and ages have used, uh, generally speaking, a, a set of questions to ask people about their interest and engagement in the campaign, their intention to vote, and their past behavior to come up with a a way of ranking or rating people's likelihood of actually showing up to vote. And then pollsters will do different things. Sometimes they'll weight each uh, respondent by their likelihood of voting. In other cases, they'll just take the top X percent of people corresponding to what you think the turnout is going to be and call those people likely voters. Given the fact that people who are more likely to vote tend to be more likely to be Republicans, It really matters where you make your cutoff or who you forecast is going to show up. If you're wrong about that, then your prediction could be wrong. So this paper uh, looks at the ways in which uh, pollsters have tried to deal with the likely voter problem and suggests a few alternatives uh, to, to current practice. Well, it looked like from your paper that you guys tried a variety of methods. I mean, one was to look at uh, some measures of past turnout as well as engagement in the actual election, then different kinds of after-the-fact modeling, looking at different kinds of statistical tests that you could run. And it seemed like almost any way you chose to do this, while some were better than others, they were all better than the prediction, just sort of asking the pe- asking voters before in advance of the election. So it, can you talk a little bit about how you matched back and, and looked at people who were actual verified voters and what sort of tests worked best? Sure. Well, we were able to do this because we were able to create the uh, pollsters equivalent of the crystal ball. You know, what what you'd really like to know when you do a pre-election poll is who's really going to show up and what they're going to do on election day. We didn't have that, but what we had was a panel. We interviewed people in September before uh, the congressional elections in 2014, and then we interviewed them again after the election and asked them uh, who they voted for and if they voted. But on top of that, we actually matched the panelists into uh, a national voter file that has a record Uh, from the state uh, vote uh, election bureaus as to whether people actually showed up or not. So we had all the pieces in place. We had their pre-election intentions and all the questions that are typically asked in a a pre-election poll about intention and interest and the like. We had a post-election measure of how they voted, and we had a verified measure of whether they voted. And so with all of those pieces together, we could essentially assign responsibility to each of the three reasons that I mentioned polls can be wrong. We ruled out the first one, which is that the sample was biased in some way. Our post-election reading of the election uh, was exactly spot on with the national total of votes for Republicans versus Democrats. And so that left the other two situations. One is whether people change their minds, and we found that there was some change and it was changed in the in the direction of the Republicans, mostly from people who were undecided or who told us they were voting for a third party candidate in the pre-election poll. But the main thing that happened is we saw that Republicans were more likely to turn out. Seventy three percent of people who said that they were going to vote Republican showed up to vote. 
61% of people who said they were going to vote Democratic showed up to vote. And that was the main part of the difference between the pre-election number, which was a four-point Democratic advantage, and what we found when we actually figured out who was going to vote, which was a three-point Republican advantage. So, um, but then you looked at things like, I mean, can you talk a little bit about uh, decision trees versus random forest versus some of the other statistical tests? I mean, some of our listeners are going to be familiar with those terms. Some of them won't be. But what kind of lessons can all of us who follow polling and research closely take from all this? You know, the simplest way to to do a likely voter scale is to ask a series of questions and assign points to each of the answers and then rank people. But there are much more sophisticated ways to do it, including setting up a regression analysis where you have uh, done this in a previous election and, and determine what the relationship is between each of the likely voter measures, interest in the election or intention to vote and so forth, and actually showing up to vote. And then you run the current data through that. That regression approach is used by a number of organizations, including uh, CBS News and the New York Times. But we took it a step further in addition to those regression methods. We employed some new techniques using machine learning and decision trees uh, to compute much more complex models. And we found that, for the most part, they actually produced more accurate uh, predictions of who was going to show up. Now, it, it's important to put a caveat in there and say, this was all done on an election where we knew the outcome. The, the proof uh, of this particular pudding would be in a future election where you can run people through those same models and see if, if you get such a good result. And, and I guess the other observation that we found is that having the voter file meant that we not only knew whether people voted in 2014, but we knew whether they voted in 2012 and 2010. And it turned out that knowledge of past vote was the strongest single predictor of turning out in 2014. This is something campaign pollsters have known for a long time, and they draw their samples off of voter lists, and so they're able to incorporate that information. Most public pollsters like Pew Research and the media pollsters uh, don't have the ability to do that. Right. So, you know, I think one of the things that was interesting in your report is talking about how, um, you know, polls can't necessarily predict the future. It's not that polls are wrong because response rates are low or because people don't answer their phone or because the lists are wrong. It's because you're asking you don't know what your actual final universes yet. And as you know, people change their minds in addition to deciding later on whether or not to show up. Do you think that these results suggest that polling as an industry is not in as much trouble as other reports might suggest? I, I do. I feel like um, it, it seems to defy common sense that getting a 9% response rate or even lower would, would yield a, an accurate or a valid sample of the public. But the fact is, we see repeatedly as we do polls where we match them up against census parameters that we are getting good samples. And in this particular instance, we know because of the voter file and our ability to verify after the election that we had a very accurate sample of the public. The problem came in uh, the fact that, well, for one, our poll was done more than a month before the election and there was some movement in the electorate. If we had done the poll closer to the election day, we could have improved on that. But mainly, we, we, we found that 
you know, we needed to be very accurate in terms of turnout, um, especially in that election. As you know, 2014 was one of the lowest turnouts um, in the past 50 years. I, I think really the lowest since the Second World War, one of the off-year elections then. And so figuring out who was going to vote, as you as you say, a population that doesn't even exist at the time of the of the poll, who's who's the electorate? Um, is the real challenge, but that fortunately is a challenge that, you know, we have a lot of experience meeting. So I'm I'm nowhere near as pessimistic about the state of polling, um, you know, as some of the critics have been in the in some of the articles that we've read over the past few months. Yes, right, like the Jill Lepore New Yorker article that you were actually uh, featured in quite prominently that seemed to have a you know have some pretty dire dire words about the industry. I mean, when we had Chuck Todd on a few months ago from Meet the Press, he said that public polling should do what campaign pollsters do internally all the time when they talk to clients, which is provide different uh, turnouts or head-to-head scores for different turnout scenarios. So if turnout is high, then uh, you're gonna, your head-to-head is this. If turnout is going to be lower, then your head-to-head will might be that. And you don't really see that in public polling. I think Monmouth, if I'm not mistaken, Monmouth did this recently, but I, I could be wrong about that particular site. But I know I saw somebody do this recently. Do you think that this suggests uh, a way forward for media outlets? They can do some of these techniques. They don't have to necessarily do all of the machine learning, multivariate analysis, but they can ask a series of questions and then provide their own turnout analysis for for readers. What do you think? I think that would be a a real positive addition to uh, the discourse on elections and predictions. Um, You know, Philip Tetlock, who's a a psychologist, has recently written a book about the super forecasters, and he recommends that, you know, people not only be more precise about their predictions, but that they put error bars around them or estimates of certainty on them um, to help people to understand how, how uh, how much you much weight you can put behind a given estimate. In the case of polling, I think putting turnout estimates in, in a range and showing the sensitivity of um, of the outcome to turnout would be a very useful piece of information for the public and especially uh, the the nerds uh, like me and your audience uh, to have when we're trying to contemplate what a what a poll means. I mean, we saw, for example, in in this experiment that depending on how you forecast the turnout to be, you could go from anywhere from a tied election to, you know, a very substantial uh, Democratic advantage or a very substantial Republican advantage, all within the realm of reasonable uh, band of turnout forecasts. Right, right. Absolutely. So uh, tell us a little bit, Scott, about your own role at Pew and how that may be changing and how you got in the industry. Just give us a little bit of background on how you became director of survey research at Pew. Sure. Um, I, I was a, I, I went to grad school and studied public opinion and elections. And of course, as doing that, you study surveys. But I had the good fortune when I was teaching at Rutgers University to work a little bit with the Eagleton Poll, which was Rutgers Poll of New Jersey at the time. And that allowed me uh, to see some of the nuts and bolts. A subsequent job that I had, I ran a survey center. I got introduced to Andy Kohut, who was uh, our late president of the Pew Research Center. He invited me to do consulting here. And eventually he recruited me to come full time, which I did in 2002. And so recently, I made a decision to uh, retire from full-time work. I'm going to work part-time this year 
Uh, so I'm no longer director of survey research. I'm an advisor. Uh, my successor, Courtney Kennedy, uh, is the uh, new director of survey research, and she, interestingly enough, was an intern here uh, shortly after I first started working full-time here. So there's a bit of a circle there, too. I love that. And we hope to have her on down the road, and, and we welcome yet another uh, woman pollster into the, the fempire that polling's become that we try to document on the pollsters when we can. Um, do, so do you have any other, uh, any words for our listeners about the industry or their thoughts uh, thinking about 2016, evaluating polling? I mean, you sound pretty optimistic. Anything else people should uh, keep in mind when they're looking at public polling? Well, you know, the um, I don't know if it's the elephant in the room or uh, exactly what you'd call it, but we haven't talked at all about online polling, non-probability uh, samples. Um, it's not something that we have done in the past, and we are skeptical and, and careful, but we have launched a fairly sizable pro- program to investigate uh, various ways of using non-probability samples in, in political and other kinds of polling. And I think the future of the industry lies somewhere there just because the trends in terms of response rates and um, the, you know, the viability of the current methods and the costs associated with the current methods mean that we're going to have to eventually make changes. I don't think we're there yet, uh, either in terms of the readiness of most of the non-probability uh, methods uh, to, to meet the, the uh, demands for such precision that election polling requires – um, nor do uh, conventional pollsters really understand those methods well enough in the methods of adjustment. So I see an area, of, uh, I see a period of ferment and uh, growth and experimentation, probably two steps forward, one step back. But I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person by nature, and I don't see anything uh, that's wrong with our profession that we can't fix. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, Scott, and congrats on your retirement. Hope you have something fun planned in your new role, and uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, we had a great talk with Scott Keeter, and uh, if folks want to look it up, it's at pewresearch.org, and it's called Can Likely Voter Models Be Improved? Uh, You can also read more about it. It was written up in the New York Times Upshot by Nate Cohn, and it was in the Washington Post by Scott Clement. So lastly, we're going to talk about TV. So have you heard this phrase, peak TV, right? Peak mm-hmm. TV, like TV so great. There's a zillion awesome shows. It's the golden era of television. Once again, right? It's the golden era of television. And meanwhile, so that, you know, so that, I guess that's true, right? Because there's a zillion shows I've never heard of that everyone raves about that you have to really kind of devote yourself to television in order. Yeah. To like watch. I haven't watched Making a Murderer yet. And I feel no. like I'm unwelcome in civil society I know. until I've like. I can discuss this case. Like, I I, people will Instagram things, and like, it's like an inside joke. Like, you have to have watched the show. I'm like, guys, I still haven't watched The Wire. Like, I g- give me, just give me a minute. Let me get caught up here. The Wire, you have to watch because okay. that, there are political. There's like lady political consultants and reporters in it. Like, you got to watch that. That's oh yeah, all and then it's the guy who plays um, Peter Baelish from Game of Thrones playing yes. Martin O'Malley, essentially. Right. Yes. So I, I, I understand that like. This is a must do. Yeah, that's a must do. Breaking Bad, I haven't gone through. Anyway, then. Oh, I'm, see, now this is me saying, right. Margie, how can you have not seen Breaking Bad? It's, it's gr- so good. It's great. I just it really is have, good, though. You, like, see it. you know, I have 10 <laughs> minutes of free time a day. And Breaking Bad's kind of dark. Yeah. Not- this is why I sometimes will get sucked into watching, like, 
you know, America's Next Top Model. Because I'm like, there's just too much sadness in the world. And yes. I do all this stuff in the news all the time and politics. And, like, right. the last thing I need is to contemplate homicide right. before I go to bed. That's right. I would much rather think about – Empire? Oh, that's a good one. I feel like I would really enjoy Empire. Empire is excellent. Well, lots of people – Aside from, I guess people, even though we seem to get excited about watching television or say that, some people now feel that they should not say that they watch television, but that's not their preferred way to spend their evening. Gallup has been tracking this amazingly. Uh, what's your preferred way to spend an evening? And television, in 1966, half of Americans said that was their preferred way. I guess it was new and it was exciting and people like that were all hunker down around the television yeah. to watch it. Um, now it's only 16%. I mean, that is a pretty major drop. And the the increase is just staying home. It's just this sort of generic, uh, you know, they, they'd rather, I mean, staying at home You're, is not, this is one of those, like, they started asking this question in 1966, and I would it. love to hop back in a time machine and be like, um, these two response options are are not mutually exclusive. You can both like staying home to watch television. And resting and relaxing is a third option, which yes. is also you can do while watching television, stay at home, and going out and visiting with friends. Or there's some overlap. So, yeah, this question could use a rewrite. I think, though, what it does show is people don't want to say my way of enjoy- – what I want to do is watch TV. Yeah. Well, if there are any pollsters out there <laughs> – Actually, this would be a terrible idea. You should add Netflix and chill as an option, except most respondents might not know what it actually means. So <laughs> never mind. Don't do that. Don't do not do a poll on Netflix and chill. I, re- I retract my statement. <laughs> <laughs> right. How about like, you know, do what is that one? Twitch, Twitchy or Twitch TV, like play video games and <laughs> online and uh, swat your friends or something. <laughs> crazy like that, then you see high scores with millennials. Um, But despite all that, people do want to watch the Golden Globes, I guess. And just like it's never too early to think about presidential politics. I mean, now it's not too early. It's now too late, really, to think about presidential politics. But people are always talking about presidential politics. And even right after the Golden Globes, people are ready to talk about who should host the next Golden Globes. And I'm glad to see this pretty clear plurality winner here for Amy Schumer and Jennifer Lawrence. They're becoming the new teen. They're, people, they're they're trying to become the new Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. But honestly, I mean, I, I like them perfectly fine. But like, you can't replace Tina Fey and Amy Poehler in my heart. No, they it are, can't be done. They're the grand dames, and they cannot be beat by any of these people on this list. Um, although it's not a bad list, it's a pretty good list. There's just, I think, again, some of these options. I think there's probably some overlap in John Oliver fans and Aziz Ansari fans and Key and Peele fans. I think. Oh yeah, see Key and Peele. That would be, I would I would probably pick them. Yeah. I, that would be great. The Golden Globes is, I think, objectively the best of the awards shows because it's TV plus movies all at once. They split the dramas and the comedies, so the fun things actually get. A little more air, you know, unlike when it's the Oscars, it's very like drama heavy. I feel like, you know, the prestige movies really get whereas at the Golden Globes, funny stuff gets its moment and everybody's sitting around tables drinking. Right. That's true. So it gets a little more wild than the very like staid, uh, very, you know, 
posh, you know, established Oscars. Like the Golden Globes, the night when anything can happen. Right, right, right. And, you know, but I'm just so out of pop culture right now that I feel like even watching any of those just sort of rubs, just like rubs salt in the wounds of my, although I did see Star Wars, so at least I'm caught up with the bare, the bare minimum greens fees required to be a member of society. Um, so the key findings, 2016 so far is still going strong. I've conquering, I'm conquering my resolutions. I'm wearing more gold. I went to yoga. So far, so good. We have an exciting race on both the Democrat and Republican sides. We have lots of new friends and listeners like Katie and Kelly. And Pew has given us a lot of new data and analysis to make us optimistic about the industry. But partisan divisions are still there, um, whether you're looking at just ID overall or if you're looking at gun ownership uh, as opposed to uh, the partisanship that drives views toward gun laws. And at a time of peak TV, people don't want to say they want to watch TV, but they do want to say they like more Amy Schumer and Jennifer Lawless. Not, can, yeah, not Jennifer Lawless. Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> I looked at it and I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. As I said, I was like, something Lawless. didn't sound right. Jennifer Lawless is also great. She Jennifer is the head Lawrence. of the Women in Politics Institute at American University. Probably, though, not on the short list to host the Golden Globes. Oh, for shame. For shame. But she is on the short list to come on the pollsters. Hey, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Well, you can find us on Twitter at, at Margie O'Mero, at Soltis Anderson, and at The Pollsters. We're at thepollsters.com, as well as on Facebook, where you can find us posting links throughout the week to the polling stories that we think are the most exciting and plan to p- potentially talk about on the upcoming show. Uh, and make sure that you subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher. And don't forget to write a review if you haven't done so yet. Great. Thanks.